Hello, and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I'm Graham Davis, the digital editor of Investors Chronicle. Um, our editor, John Human, is missing in action this week, and his uh, usual wingman, Phil Oakley, is also missing. So this week, I'm joined by a couple of young guns, Tom Dines. Hello, Tom. Hello. And Alex Jenniad. Hello, Hello, Alex. It's been another mixed week on the markets. Geopolitical concerns continue to ride roughshod over over investor sentiment. But first of all, we'll come to geopolitical stuff and the global uh, perspective a little bit later. First of all, I wanted to uh, look at a UK-focused news from this week's magazine. First of all, starting off with you, Alex, this story that just won't go away, Woodford. So, yes, Neil Woodford. So if, in case you've been living under a rock, Former star manager Neil Woodford's uh, equity income fund suspended, and Andrew Bailey, chief executive of the Financial Economic Authority, appeared in front of the Treasury Select Committee uh, this week in front of a pugilistic Nicky Morgan. And there are a number of takeaways from this. Emma Powell and I, uh, our main sort of angle on this story, uh, was concerns that Mr. Bailey raised over fee discounts uh, negotiated by Hargreaves Lansdowne for the funds that are listed on their Wealth 50 kind of best buys list. There's a lot of scrutiny on funds that are on all of these platforms, not just HL, um, so-called best buys. Um, so if, you, if you're if you a Hargreaves Lansdowne customer and you buy from these funds, HL will, well, they negotiate a discount on the annual management charge of usually around 30% on average. And Andrew Bailey has questioned whether these fee discounts ended up fueling excessive inflows into the fund, uh, which then in turn may have compromised Neil Woodford's investment strategy. A victim of his own success, potentially, but also the, a, well, vic- a victim of this... Of this uh... it, it's an interesting hypothesis, and it's, it's not one I've come across before, but yeah, essentially the fund will have had a certain timeline, certain objectives associated with that timeline and scale. The fund grew, in the words of Mr. Bay, too, too big too quickly, something he may have suggest- he suggested, and... That I mean, it's difficult to know what exactly Andrew Bailey means by this. He did, when asked, was this, is this a failure of rules or regulation? He very much pointed, perhaps as he would, to the rules. I'm fairly sceptical with the idea. I know the story's moved on from Neil Woodford is a bad stock picker to the fund had excessive illiquidity, and now we're being told it was too big for its own good. It seems like a lot of diagnoses for different problems, really. So. Yeah, one to look out for. I mean, in these select committee hearings are quite revealing, they're quite interesting. There's a lot of narrative around them. Um, Andrew Bailey is the hot favourite at the moment for the governorship of the Bank of England. He, of course, spent many years there. Um, that is now uh, under question. And we'd expect to see um, other figures in this saga appear in front of that committee eventually. Certainly Neil Woodford, Hargreaves Lansdowne will be there. Link uh, Fund Solutions is the administrator of the fund. Um We'll also expect to be there. And, and another, and this is really, the last couple of days has really accelerated this story, but a perceived conflict of interest that arose a few years ago. So essentially, Woodford Investment Management employed a financial advisory company called Duff and Phelps to value the illiquid holdings in their own fund, which the SEA decided years ago was unacceptable so so these are the unquoted yeah investments which so are yeah notoriously difficult to value yes anyway. so so it's not quite the sense that woodford are deciding how much their own holdings are worth but they were paying someone to do that so that relationship was then passed over to link what is interesting the ft last night broke an exclusive that the sca had recommended link 
to Woodford. So despite having censured Link on a number of occasions prior to that, um, there's all, there's also questions around that. I think so far the FCA haven't really commented, but are it seems a bit cosy. Yeah, exactly. There's there's a lot of yeah. There's a lot of overlap, and uh, it's, it's difficult to tell at this point what it's, it's difficult to know where the fee discount question will go. I don't know how you would regulate that. There doesn't seem to be anything going morally untoward, and it's certainly not something I've come across in the context of any other fund management. I don't. I don't. I, my personal view is I don't think this is something that's going to be run. That's going to run further, but it's it's an interesting it's an interesting one for our readers, interesting who may well be Hargreaves Landown customers who may suddenly think and already may be quite concerned over the performance of the Best Buy funds and the funds they've been buying into, in part due to the not formal advice from Hargreaves Landstown, but certainly the encouragement by the content on the website. They may now think again and question whether these funds are actually well, the, whether the strategies of these funds and the sizes are aligned. Yeah, I mean, there's been we've there's been a lot of a lot of words uh, expounded over this, I guess, in recent weeks, and this podcast itself. John and, and Phil talked about this at length recently, but you know there are concerns clearly if if the uh, the you know parliamentary committees are raising it over these mm. Best Buy lists and how they encourage people. Yeah, it should be said that Hoggies Lansdowne don't take a fee specific for having those funds on the list. Mm. I just want to clarify that. But this this committee this week was more of a fact finding. There's no finger points going on. This is a fact finding. So there are letters being sent from the committee, uh the SCA back and forth, Guernsey Stock Exchange as well. Um we're hearing from we're hearing from all the figureheads and at the moment we're still I think in early days of this story. But. Yeah, there's a long way to run. I mean, we're only we still haven't got to the first 28 days of it being gated. This yeah, month, have we? And so, so therefore, at that point, it will come under review again. Yeah. Um, Mr. Woodford still continues to draw his fee, and that's something that the committee and Andrew Bailey were aligned on in their position. Where really he should probably be waiving that now. Although Bailey did observe that did observe that arguably he's doing more management of the fund than he's ever had to do before. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I, I see that he has made some progress in selling um, holdings in that fund. Mm. He's raised some of the money that, that's been requested from uh, from for, for redemptions. And I think this week also there was an, a takeover offer for BCA Marketplace in which that's right in which Woodford, uh, Woodford has a holding. Has mm. a holding. So again, that's going to um, mm. help boost his coffers, as it were, which is what he needs to do. At yeah, the I'm not sure the timeline on that. I might, don't know how quickly he needs the liquidity. But, mm. uh, yeah, I mean. Long term, that probably. Now, BTA Marketplace is automobiles, yeah? Yes. Car sales. Tom, you had a, an FCA related story as well. Good good segue there to your story <laughs> on the FCA and car sales. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So there's there's been a few concerns over the auto retail sector in general. Uh, on one hand, because car registrations, both new and used cars, are declining mm. uh, year on year. I think off the top of my head, the last time used car sales were up was something like first quarter of 2017. So it's been kind of a long-running trend. Separately, financing concerns about auto finance um, and these these arrangements where you can get a new car and you pay off X amount every month. Uh, Basically, the FCA did a probe into it, um, which concluded earlier this year, saying that uh, these arrangements may be harming consumers and costing as much as £300 million more annually than a flat fee commission model. So that's a fair concern. Now, Lookers, the the investigation to Lookers is seemingly related to that. There's they basically did an independent review which uncovered control issues with the group sale processes. That's not to say that they've necessarily done anything unethical. Nothing has been found. And uh, Peel Hunt, in fact, noted that uh, they sell manufacturer finance deals. They have no say 
lookers themselves do not have any say over interest rates or commissions or anything like that. Problem appears to be more administrative than uh, some sort of more fundamental problem with the products or the pricing. That's so the it. finance is provided by a third party, essentially by the lookers, and they sell it on. showroom. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, basically, it's it's a big unknown, and given how nervous the market is about auto retailers, any unknown is taken as, as a pretty bad thing. So when this came out about three o'clock on, uh, I think it was Tuesday, the uh, shares immediately down 24%. They recovered quite strongly, but it just goes to show sort of how nervous people are about this sector. Just two weeks ago, we had Pendragon uh, warning they were going to be significantly loss-making in the yep. first half of the year. And so it's just a bit... People are very, very nervous about what's going on. So there's a lot of no one really knows what's going to happen with lookers at the moment. But uh, it's we we took them off a buy because it's just not a great place to be, and any added uncertainty is very unwelcome. Are there any chinks of light in that sector? Valuations are pretty low. And <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so potentially it's not so clear how to access them. It might actually be something that Alex would be better, mm. better able to speak to. So. Um, Alternative fuel vehicles is the only sector that's consistently growing in terms of new registrations, although that is a very low base and it's yeah, not not all that clear how to access it or how high it's likely to go, but things like hybrid vehicles, electric vehicles, that sort of thing yep. uh, seems to be picking up a lot of steam. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Alex. Moving on with news uh, this week, looking more globally, geopolitical concerns continue to uh, sort of dominate the markets. And Donald Trump has sort of held off on firing cruise missiles this week, thankfully. Um, but he still is firing off crude threats via Twitter. Japan and India were in his in his sights this week uh, before he flew out to the G20 summit, which is happening in Japan over the weekend. And I think global trade and protectionism are going to dominate those talks, certainly. Trump, I think, is going to be meeting President Xi China for the first time since their latest round of tariffs. This leads us on to one company that you wanted to talk about, Alex, IQE, which uh, has been hammered by this trade war. Yeah, so IQE, they make semiconductors, basically uh, bits for phones. Uh, they've been a bit of an interesting growth story the last few years. Um, but, well, they guarded in May that they'd expect some short-term disruption knowing to the Trump trade disputes. And Huawei, who they've got quite a bit of exposure to through their own customers, have been listed uh, by the United States Department of Commerce, along with 68 of Huawei's affiliates, on a list that bans the sale of products covered by basically its export regulations without having a specific and appropriate export license, mm. basically making it very hard um, for exports. So IQE has said that, you know, things won't will be fine in the long run. They've now then revised that down, so they expect their revenues to could work well come in below last year um, and below a prior consensus of $175 million, a range around 140 to 165 So shares went down by nearly 40% um, off the back of that. I, I guess one of the things with IQE is it's not just that it's a healthy company, um, experiencing a bad time. All of the sectors taken a bit of a hit. Broadcom, a giant in the sector, also has signal concern over this. It's more that it's a company that's in a bad way internally. They had disruption in their photonics uh, division supply chain, uh, so semiconductor laser diodes, and so that basically contributes to fall in demand. Um, they've built up a lot of stock, and we've seen in this section in the past that basically the, the rate of technological advance is so great that you, what you do not want is lots of stock building up and sitting around. So they're having to unwind inventories in a soft market. Um, they've, you know, this, their capex has gone up in recent years. So the returns on capital are pretty poor. The free cash conversion is pretty poor. 
So this was a company that, although the, the recent trade issues have obviously compounded its problems, the, the problems were there were problems already there. Yeah, I, I took them down to a sell off the results in March off the back of their internal disruption. Um, and, well, not, never pleased, <laughs> but um, being vindicated in that decision. But yeah, nobody's safe, certainly in semiconductors. I think it's interesting the point you make in India in that I've seen, I mean, I've written the words China, US-China trade war to death. Um, in my articles, but a lot of industrial businesses have moved production out of China into neighboring countries, one of which is India. Yep. So now if Trump goes to war with India, because I think the US removes some kind of favorable trade arrangement between the US and India, and India imposes some retaliatory tariffs, which may have been a bit myopic because if now Trump is going to turn on them as well, companies, I mean, I... I, I I don't know to what extent that would be considered before, and I dread to think what's going to happen. You, these these companies were facilities in places like Vietnam, but just, yeah, I mean, where, just keep moving around. Where does it end? Well, it's how it's how integrated your supply chain yeah. is as well. So if it's if it's deeply integrated, then you've got a problem. If yeah. you can if you move things flexibly around, it'll cost you, but not too bad. Um, it's very interesting to see what will happen. I think re- regards to India for across the industrial sector. Indeed, and also I mean I saw a great graphic in the FT this week um, showing the shift in uh, in trade between the US and Vietnam mm. in recent months. There's a giant export surplus, isn't there? Yeah. And it's such a, these are definitely Vietnamese goods. They're not Chinese goods. They're definitely Vietnamese. Yeah. So it's, it's inter- <laughs> interesting. Very interesting how, um, quick, how quickly this globalised economy can can morph and change and shift to different jurisdictions. It, it's, it's really interesting to see what, how, how mm. this is going to pan out. Um, whether we'll get more out of that this weekend at the G20, I'm not sure. I think it could be volatile. Okay, so IQE is one to definitely strike off for now. Mm. Um, and I mean, the, the question is, I guess, for a lot of these companies is really, if if the tariff situation gets resolved, how quickly is this business? I mean, this is up? unprecedented. So mm. it's very difficult to project for. We've seen slowdowns in the past, but also given the rise of China, it's the first time we've seen anything like this in the context of a nation like China developing at its rate. So it's very difficult to know. I think it's more... You know, if you did hold it, it's more going to stay away, really. Yep. The Huawei situation mm. is particularly interesting, I think, because uh, even tariffs or no tariffs, it looks as though Trump's got Huawei in his sights. Yeah, and there are national security questions as well. There's certainly a, a difference of opinion between the US and the UK. The UK seem uh, willing to let Huawei do certainly some non-core infrastructure work. For now, Trump seems dead against it. Um, with the likely arrival of Boris Johnson... I wonder whether that work will be allowed to carry on and what that will mean for companies further down the supply chain, obviously. Mm. Yes, one to watch there, I think. Now, um, also on sort of uh, the geopolitical angle, relations between the US and Iran have deteriorated Mm. further um, in the past week or so. And sticking with that region, obviously Saudi and Iran are major players in the Gulf region. um, And there's some fairly substantial news this week regarding arms sales to Saudi that you wrote, Alex, Mm. as well. What's what's the story there? So, temporarily, the UK government is not going to grant new licences for the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia and the eight other countries in its coalition that might be used in the Yemen conflict. So, step back. So, Saudi Arabia led group nine countries into conflicts in Yemen since 2015. As of November 2018, it's very difficult to get official figures for this, 6,872 civilians have been killed, 10,768 wounded, mostly by Saudi Arabia-led airstrikes, and that's according to the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. The likely number of casualties is much higher. 
where we come into this as a country is that we have, well, we have a big arms industry and our main player really is a company called BAE Systems, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with. Yep. BAE Systems generated around 14% of the revenues from Saudi Arabia last year. Um, they have a history going back to 1966 with uh, Saudi. It, it should be said that arms contracts are done via the UK government. So the UK government and Saudi have an arrangement and then BAE will provide, and others, and we'll come to those others, yep. uh, provide aircraft, support systems and weaponry, along with, importantly here, training and support services. In 2017, the campaign against the arms trade um, organisation appealed a high court judgment which had allowed the sale of arms for use in this conflict. And the Court of Appeal uh, this month have decided actually sale of arms to Saudi Arabia are unlawful. And that's because governments are expected to carry out due diligence to ensure that licenses aren't granted for equipment that might be used for the commission of serious violations in humanitarian law. And it's, it's pretty clear in this case that this, this equipment is being used in Yemen. So the government denies that it is contesting this position and yep. it says it's done its due diligence. BAE provides, well, Elisa Consortium to provide Eurofighter Typhoon aircraft to Saudi Arabia. Elisa Consortium across Europe, Germany have disrupted that by banning sale of arms to Saudi Arabia following the murder of, of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, um, something that BAE Systems have since said may well financially impact the company. Um, there's some very good reporting in The Guardian um, earlier this month and actually the true role of BAE. And it must be said that BAE say that their involvement in supporting the Saudi Air Force is limited to providing equipment, support and training. Um, former workers and MOD and MOD Mandarin have suggested to The Gu- to Guardian and dispatches that BAE's role goes further than this. And in the words of one former BAE employee, uh, the jets literally couldn't function. They wouldn't get into the sky without the support of BAE. So it's this question of how active is the UK and how active is BAE Systems um, in this conflict. Now, BAE may be the main player here. Obviously, yeah, as I said before, we have a big aerospace and defence uh, contingent. Rolls-Royce put the engines into the Eurofighter Typhoon. Uh, Megit provide uh, braking systems, including wheels, carbon brakes, landing gear computers. Uh, Kemring have historically provided Saudi, uh, arms to Saudi Arabia. Cobham, meanwhile, the contract doesn't run anymore, but in 2014 they awarded a 30-month contract by BAE to provide air support to operational readiness training for the Saudi Air Force as part of the Saudi British Defence Cooperation Program. So there is a lot of involvement from a lot of com- companies. It should be said that. BAE and Rolls-Royce, I spoke across the sector, were the only ones who actually commented and said, we are examining this judgment and recognise that you have exposure to this area. Um, Every other company declined to comment. It's interesting the evolution of the way that these companies have discussed Saudi Arabia. Uh, I've been through a lot of company reports dating back for the last 10 years. And uh, Kemmering, an example of a company that openly discussed uh, Saudi Arabia as a target market for munitions sales, now you won't even really find references in the most recent report. I would say Middle East. Uh, yeah. So Middle East replaces Saudi. But it, it, it's, I don't know. I think for an investor, I think you do take on that risk. You are buying into aerospace and defense. And while there are certainly, there is a national, there are obviously nations need weapons uh, to preserve peace. We are also guilty, it looks like, of human rights violation. And to what extent do you want to be exposed to this? 
as an investor, the Labour government have said that they would ban arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Um, if they become the government. If they became the government, mm-hmm. Labour Party, sorry. They've, uh, the Labour Party spokesperson has also told me that training would be off the menu as well. Okay. So, yeah, we there are it's there's a lot of overlap here. So it's, it's quite uncomfortable. I took Bay off a buy to sell, not just because of this, because ultimately, while it's it's important, it can't be the only guiding factor. Moral risk is certainly an important risk when it comes to investment. Uh, ultimately, in the, in the BAE's recent results, sales and adjusted profits were down the previous year. Free cash flow more than halved, and to put it briefly, it's not a great company right now. BAE. Mm. I guess, I mean, there's, as you say, there's a 50-year history here mm. of, of trade with between BAE and, and involvement in Saudi Arabia. So you knew, investors have no excuse. They know what they're buying into. They're buying into an exposure to Saudi. I Quite. It's, it's, um, it's, and so I think one of the strengths, one of the bullet points of BAE has been what is guaranteed orders effectively mm. forever, uh, thanks to the UK government. Uh, but however long that lasts in, in the near, in the medium term, that, yeah, that may not maybe up for debate now. I mean, these are these are huge figures here. You're saying since since um, this conflict started in 2015, UK has licensed sale of 4.7 billion of arms to Saudi mm. in three four years. Four years. Uh, so effectively, yeah, it's an industry that employs a lot of people in this country. Mm. Uh, it's 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 an argument that politicians have made that we can't just do away with our arms industry, often on that basis, which particularly. For a conservative government, it's quite a curiously Keynesian approach to employing economics. So, what's what's the situation now? Is that is that there is a a stay on 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 any sales on new licenses? So, existing licenses are fine. So, okay, so they will continue. So, BAE, for example, if they're shipping uh, Eurofighter Typhoon, they can. There's the old batch they can still sell, but there's a new batch they've agreed a memorandum of intent to sell, which would require a new license. Mm. So the question here is, what does this mean for future business between BAE and Saudi Arabia, um, along with everyone else? Um, officially, exposures amongst the vast majority of the sector is pretty limited to Saudi Arabia now, um, Kemmering included, um, who have provided arms of force. It's really BAE, the big question marks over them. And it is on uh, upon the UK government to challenge this? or the Yeah, the UK themselves. government will now have to challenge the Court yeah. of Appeal and make the case they did carry out due diligence which will be interesting. There's just not much information on the ground in the public domain because it's impossible to send journalists to Yemen. Mm. And the Saudi Saudi government, obviously, rich history in the UK and the Saudi government, and who are not famed for being transparent, certainly on this sort of thing. So, yeah. yeah okay. Anything. So you've taken BAE down to a hold on this yeah. uncertainty, and uh, it sounds like you're not going to change that in, in, in the near term, at least. No. Um, and watch out for the rest rest of the sector. Thank you very much, Alex. Now, moving on to uh, one of the features for this week, and Tom's here to talk about this, streaming. Yes. Tom, I spend a lot of time at home staring at the back of my 10-year-old son's head as he plays Fortnite, so I know a little bit about streaming video games. But for our, our listeners, tell us a bit more about this industry. How big is it? Uh, so it's essentially much bigger than anybody realized because of the very reason you mentioned so online gaming has been around since my dad stood at the back of my head from mm. playing age of empires online but uh essentially Fortnite came out in 2017 massive hit and made something like 2.4 billion dollars in revenues in 2018 wow. uh, and that's predominantly a younger audience mm. who they compete against each other they build maps and meet their friends and it's become sort of a social thing as much as a competitive thing yeah it's, i mean it's, it's it's almost a teen early teen pre-teen thing when my son's 10 him yeah. and his friends are playing it sort of 
so it's it's a new demographic almost for yeah absolutely and they're not just they're not just playing it themselves there's a massive surprisingly large market in watching professional players play it on youtube and things like that tell me about so um for the popularity of Fortnite, it's not strictly speaking streaming because to play it you still need to download it install it whatever you need to you basically need to buy something and download it to play the game. Yep. Streaming offers is much more like a the analogy which uh, others have used and that I've beaten to death in the piece is is the Netflix of games. So uh, at the start of this year, Reed Hastings, the chief executive of Netflix, said that they compete with and lose to Fortnite more than they do HBO, which is the sort of other yep. big prestige TV show company in the US. So this kind of recalibrated the view of a lot of people that um, the entertainment industry is more about time on screen than it is what what's going on on that screen necessarily. So Google, Microsoft, and more or less any big tech company you could name is looking at the online streaming market where you could essentially, with very limited equipment, so you don't have to spend a huge amount of money for a console the way you would with an Xbox One or mm. a PlayStation 4 or even those like very specialised gaming PCs, you have maybe a controller or uh, something to actually put get an internet connection for your TV. Uh, you pay a subscription and you have access to a library of games. You can buy additional games. You don't have to download anything. It's all available straight away. And uh, it's available across a number of screens. So the mobile games market is huge for small games like Angry Birds or Solitaire or stuff that you play play at a bus stop, essentially. What this offers is both anybody with a TV or any sort of screen can play high-quality sort of prestige games anywhere they want, which massively increases the market. So am I going to lose access to my television as well now? (laughs) Well, if you've got any smaller screens around the house, you could distract your son with those. So that's the the investment appeal there is obvious because a huge market waiting to be tapped into. The secondary appeal is the UK has a pretty healthy subsector of video games development companies, mm. whether that's people like um, Codemasters who make racing games. They actually have one of their titles in the launch version of Google's streaming service, which is called Stadia. Uh, so when you sign up at launch, you can play Grid, which is the racing game, uh, immediately other ones like uh, team 17 frontier developments all these people who put the games together uh, and how, how is codemasters monetizing that so they um they get 70 percent share of revenues from stadia google uh keeps 30 percent uh, which was a concern because obviously uh if you liken it to say a spotify which was music mm. streaming a lot of musicians are pretty annoyed with how they were compensated but the games industry so far has been very transparent and and are giving the vast majority of the revenues to the developers themselves. So there's there's a few developers who make their own games for platforms. Then there's secondary sort of outsourced developers, people like Sumo Group or Keyword Studios, and they um, they're essentially like outsourced development services. So we've got these massive games that you hear about, like a say a Red Dead Redemption sort of thing, which a massive game came out uh, late last year, where it's an enormous essentially the old west and you can go anywhere and do anything more or less Uh, so given the sheer amount of development that goes into that it's very common to hire outsourced studios to maybe design the animals or parts of the landscape stuff like that so the increasing prevalence of these larger prestige games on a whole range of screens 
increases the need for the services of people like Sumo Group and Keyword, and the, the need for content, which is, after all, how these massive streaming services will compete with one another, uh, is good for the developers. So these development companies, like the ones you mentioned, Sumo, and, and the mm. like, they 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 don't have to worry about the success of a game because they're going to get a contract to fulfil part of the game. Yeah, so so Sumo and Keywords would pay for the development process, much more like a sort of freelance thing, like I suppose. Outsourced. Uh, whereas the people like Codemasters, for instance, they get a share of revenue for the game, so that would be presumably a bit more uh, dependent on the success of the actual game. Yeah. Uh, what are valuations like for these companies? Are they true tech valuations? No, no, these are... <laughs> These are tech companies that make money. Yeah. Uh, it's they've, <laughs> they've got a definite set of skills. A lot of them have very, very long track records. Codemasters been around for a long time. Team Seventeen, the Worms franchise, has been around since the nineties on more or less every console that has existed since then. Worms, great game. Yeah, yeah. It's, everyone's played it, and there's there's like forty <laughs> versions of it. Um, so yeah, these these companies have a track record. They are doing well well enough now this is essentially a huge opportunity for them if they can uh, make the right relationships so what happens to the console makers i mean microsoft is a console maker yeah so the is the console dead if it is it's dying slowly basically sony which made the playstation and microsoft which make the xbox have both announced new console projects and uh, for, I've basically done what the tech industry do, does and has, have sold you a dream about how this thing's going to be amazing. Uh, at the end of the day, it is, there is also a major concern about internet connectivity. In order to do these things competitively, you need a fast internet connection, which makes rolling it out quite difficult, especially once you get outside of major cities. So consoles are still in the picture for the moment because they just don't have that concern. Uh, like I say, there's two major console companies, the two biggest ones really, planning to come out with a console both of those consoles will have its rumored streaming capabilities so it looks like in the medium term you move from a console based or download based service to a sort of augmented service where you've got a console and the stuff you can play all that stuff you can also stream while they work out the kinks and then in the long term presumably move to a much cheaper much more flexible full streaming model but that technology isn't going to arrive overnight yeah, it's a fascinating industry, and uh, as I know to the to my own cost, literally, um, it can you know it, they do know how to make money out of young people. Yes, um, excellent, fascinating stuff. Thanks, Tom. And that there's more in the, on that feature in this week's magazine. There's plenty more in this week's magazine, including our main feature, which is on the UK property market. Uh, Phil Oakley is taking a look at the IPO of Trainline another place where a lot of my money tends to go to. And uh, we also have a sector focus talking about the the, uh, the conversation we had earlier on, on platforms. Um, our, our sector focus this week is looking at the different investment platforms. And our personal finance team has put together a feature on which platforms to choose to avoid hefty charges. So plenty in the magazine, available in all good news agents on Friday and on the web at www.investorschronicle.co.uk. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Tom. And thanks for listening. Goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.